You're listening to the Bugcast, broadcasting from Studio B, from the heart of WBUG. Hello and welcome to the Bugcast, episode number seven, I think. Uh, Double check on your subscription before you trust me on that, but... An interesting thing has occurred since the last time we have visited one another. And um we were t- we in the last episode it was more nostalgic um you know how cassette tapes affected my life and um how most of us back in the day just kind of well, you know, interacted and utilized what we had around us. Um, VHS tapes was kind of a side note to that whole episode. And also the mixtape, true definition, between a demonstration tape or, quote, demo tape versus a mixtape. And uh, the fact that when I was coming up in the 90s, the starter jacket somehow got the name Bomber Jacket. Uh, really offended me. So I don't know how society mixes things up like this, but it does happen from time to time. And as you have probably guessed, it gets kind of annoying. Anyway, interesting phenomenon has occurred since that episode. And um, it's kind of a little, little known fact um, that, that I do embrace digital on on you know once once in a while but not not often uh but as far as digital media goes my all-time favorite and most fascinating and elusive is the mini disc now somehow this has sparked a renew an interest amongst a few listeners uh you know, about Minidisc, and, you know, the feedback has been pretty good. But uh, I mentioned, I think, in the last episode that it, it is one of the most expensive digital formats there is. Nothing beats tape as far as I'm concerned. But um, real real tape, not cassette tape or A-track, not to be confused. Uh, I absolutely refuse to listen to anything on 8-track due to the fact that the clunkiness of it is just absolutely annoying. Um, I would like to experiment with uh, 8-track at some point. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to do that, but it would be interesting. I know the tape itself is is a quarter inch. Uh, not even a quarter. I think it's half inch. It's really wide tape and it's iron oxide most of the time. Uh, so iron oxide, half inch tape, um, recorded at the right speed. That's, that's high quality, uh, tape. But the fact of the matter is there's not much of it in an A track. So you've got eight cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. I think you've got four tracks that you click through on an eight track to two two tracks per stereo track uh, 
you know, you got one stereo tracks left and right. So that's one, two, left and right, three, four, left and right. Three, you know what I'm saying? So anyway, the mini disc has kind of sparked an interest because a lot of us in the net, uh, Generation X folks out there either have never heard of the mini disc or remember it. And they're like, wow, you know, I thought that died on the vine. And I didn't think it was that good because it wasn't that popular, blah, blah, blah. But the truth of the matter is, you've get you with a mini disc, and I, I just hate that it was even expensive at the time because it's such better medium than CDs. But what you have is you've got a very very small package that holds as much data as a CD. Out of the gate, it's rewritable. Okay, so it has all the advantages of a cassette tape. No loss in length of recording time. Digital, smaller. Uh, all the advantages are there. So that that's one of the main reasons I like digital tape. In fact, I've got a Sony mixer that records too many discs. And... Uh, one of these days, I will do an episode of Geek vs. Geek on that, or maybe this episode, uh, Bugcast, uh, this this show, as it were. We'll just have to see. But anyway, um, moving right along, the mini disc has sparked interest. And uh, so anyway, what I thought I'd do this episode is um actually explore my discovery and experience with the mini disc and uh how at this point in my life um i've decided to revisit uh i first became aware of the mini disc um at sears actually um, back in the day, Sears sold was was first of all, Sears was a big department store in our local mall. And as previous episodes, I spent a lot of time in our local mall. And Sears offered a lot of electronics, TVs, boom boxes back in the day. Bookshelf stereos were becoming popular in the 90s, mid to late 90s. And uh, there were some really nice systems. I wasn't never interested in bookshelf stereos because I had one. Or, yeah, I had one at that time. So, not necessarily bookshelf. I mean, I've, I've got my Pioneer, um, which I upgraded to it later. But I've always had a, I had a Pioneer before this that I traded uh few stuff for I got a reel to reel TX four track reel to reel and a pioneer stereo system uh out of the whole deal and uh wasn't as old as the one I have now but it was my entry level into that realm the problem was I started analog remained analog and stayed analog so when CDs came out I realized that oh dear um, I would have to buy all new equipment in order to be able to listen to the CDs that are coming out 
That wasn't going to happen, obviously, until much, much later. Well, no, not much later. I kind of had other ways. Like, I think at some point I had a Sony Discman that I plugged into the auxiliary input, and I was able to listen to CDs that way. It sounded really good uh, through a full-size stereo. Uh, no complaints there. It's just I didn't like how it was rigged together. And that's where I learned how to integrate anything with just about anything. And that was, uh, you know, you, you had to figure out how to get stuff to work. And you didn't have good money to go and just buy all this stuff. You said, I've got this and I've got this. How do I get these two things to work? Uh, it was very interesting at the time. So, yeah, it was very interesting at the time. So what I was able to do is get the Discman hooked up. Eventually, for Christmas one year, I got a Sony boombox. It was, you know, it was in the 90s. And it was black, had the handle on it, and it played CDs. And that was the only way I could listen to CDs. It had, the, it had a single cassette deck in the front. Uh, which I was still doing the mixtape thing back then. And it had a CD loader on top. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, you know, we're headed in the right direction here. And it sounded really good. Um, to this day, I listen to music while I'm taking a shower. Or if I'm spending any amount of time in the bathroom, music is going to follow me in there. To the chagrin of some folks. But that's how I roll. So the Sony boombox made its way into the bathroom most of the time. It didn't stay in there, but get a shower, grab the boombox, boom, throw mix, throw mixtape in there, or listen to a CD. Uh, and that was that. I never owned any mini disc. I never had the equipment or the technology, but uh, a couple of the really hip. Students in my school had the, the mini disc Walkman, which was about the size of a cracker almost. Um, very, very small. And I was very jealous, very fascinated with this. Um, I'll eventually get one of those. There's a model I'm looking at, the, the HD version. It's like the uh, Z-M... 919 something or other anyway they're going for t terribly expensive right now but you can get the regular sport mini disc player for for really cheap and you can get the regular uh, you know component based player fit into your stereo rack uh, fairly cheap I like Pioneer, uh, vintage Pioneer Electronics. However, the Sony Mini Disc, um, Sony invented that technology, and I try to give them props for it. So, whatever Mini Disc technology is out there that I acquire will probably be from this point manufactured in Japan by Sony. Uh, anything else to me would just be inferior. 
Uh, Sony created the the format. They know how to manipulate it and integrate it probably the best of anybody. Although Pioneer does did make mini disc players and recorders back in the day. Uh, another very fine Japanese co- uh, company. Like I said, it was not manured, manufactured in Japan. Uh, no deal. It's it's not authentic to me. I mean, you can slap a Sanyo brand on something and it'd be made in China, but it's not a Sony. Uh, Sony stuff eventually became, like all of it, manufactured outside of the home country and uh, quality definitely went down from there. So that's my opinion anyway. So anyway, uh, the mini disc attention from the last episode or however often I have mentioned it uh, is a good solution if you want to go digital and you don't have a lot of space because the mini disc is the size of a cracker, literally. And um, this is something that Excuse me. Uh, this is something that can benefit somebody who doesn't have the room to have a big stereo and big components that go with the stereo and uh, everything that goes along with that. You can have a literally a bookshelf system sound really good. Uh, these clip speakers that I have hooked up to my Mac... Uh, they're six-inch drivers. They're three-way speakers. They're actually studio monitors. Uh, they're 200 watts. And uh, I can literally shake the house with them. And they fit on a desktop. You can go one level further with these. Okay. And hook up uh Klipsch subwoofer to them and get a 2.1 set up they don't need the subwoofer but if you really want like if you like if i had a home theater set up i would probably do the whole subwoofer and everything i wouldn't do full surround sound i'd do 2.1 left right and subwoofer and uh i think with that you would be good to go but you get you a mini disc player, that would be all you need. Maybe an amplifier. Get, well, with these, you wouldn't even need an amplifier. They're, they're powered speakers because they're studio monitors. So the way I have these hooked up is uh, optical out from my Mac in through an optical cable into the optical input of the speakers. And that's it. One, one cable. They're connected to each other by cable, and they're connected to the wall outlet. And that's it. Uh, They're also Bluetooth capable, if you wanted to do that. And they also have an auxiliary input, if you wanted to do that. XLR, I don't think the XLR, but they got RCA, definitely. Um, So they've got a multitude of different ways to connect to these. So whatever old technology you have... You can definitely get audio through these. Now, are they cheap? No, they're not cheap. We're not talking about cheap because if you're going Sony Mini Disc anyway, finding the pre-recorded music on that format is going to be expensive. For example, Division Bell, in its original case, 
Uh, there's a listing right now on eBay for for that, which, which you know, just full disclosure, it is a promo, uh, which that's usually all you can find because there wasn't a wide market for these yet, ever. And they only stopped making mini disc in 2013, so you had a good 30 year run from '83, which they. That's when they were introduced, but they didn't start seeing the market until 93. So 20-year period there from 93 to 2013 where you had a really, you know, so they're, they're out there. They're just It's just not cheap because there's not a whole lot of them out there. And demand is what it is. But I'm not the only one who favors mini-discs. Just the CDR and the CD1 the format race. And I don't know why. Uh, probably because it's cheaper. If Sony had brought that price point down some, probably would be a um, different story these days. But pre-recorded music on the mini disc is possible. That's part of the allure there is the hunt to go and just find it. Uh, part of it is, like I said, you've got something literally the size of a cracker. How much space do you really need for that? Top of your dresser, just make yourself a little shelf. 50 or 70 mini discs on top of there, and it's out of the way. Boom. You can even keep them in your sock drawer if you so chose to do so. Just... Thumb through there Pick one out Throw it in and listen to it This whole setup can fit on the top of your dresser Or your chest of drawers One I mean The whole the whole nine The speakers The, the, the playback device the, the whole thing So uh, In working with people And giving them advice Um I'm still of the opinion, go big or go home. Uh, moving air is what we're talking about. And if you want a good, rich environment, a good good presence, you want to feel like the music or the audio that you're listening to is coming from a real place or better, then you need to move a lot of air. And that takes up space because you need surface area to move that air. And uh, as a bass player, I can tell you, moving air takes a lot of energy. Um, you're not going to hear those bass frequencies from an iPhone speaker. You're just not going to do it. That's why I recommend really good over-the-ear headphones or really good... Uh, if you're going with the bookshelf speaker for, uh, you know, form factor... Have some really good ones that can move the volume of air that you need to hear everything the way it was intended to be. And having said that, um, the bookshelf speakers that I'm using are not really bookshelf, but they're small enough, you know. And you're just going to have to uh, make sacrifices. And like I said, you can get it. You can get the whole setup to fit on top of a chest of drawers or um, a dresser. Or maybe just set it up on an end table in a corner somewhere. You know, if you've got a one-room situation like 
some of the folks that I talk to uh, experience. And um, so, yeah, back in the day, I, I didn't have any particular personal experience with the mini disc. It always eluded me. And uh, now that I'm older and know better, um, getting into these formats, like I said, that that's m my favorite digital format. My all-time favorite format of, you know, just total well-roundedness is vinyl records. That's the way I prefer to listen to music. It's the way I prefer to experience it. And, uh... There's just, you know, there's just no better way to do it, in my opinion. But that's analog. That's all time. You know, I always default to analog. And any time that, uh, yeah, so always default to analog. That's my favorite. And now we'll get ready for the news. And now for the news. All right. Um. Y'all know how this works by now. The new segment is completely out of control. Looking up the news right now, as a matter of fact. Um, usually I get uh, good. Oh, okay, here's good news. This is good news. Well, I don't know if it's good news, but it's quality news. Uh, the headline read now. This is from a usual source that I don't normally um, go to, but it's called UltimateGuitar.com. Ultimate-Guitar.com. So, as a guitar player, uh, this is what kind of news we're gonna get. But this is juicy. All right, uh, Jason Newstead speaks on. Quote, unquote, weird way Lars Ulrich behaved in Metallica. Talks how Bob Rock treated the band. Treated the band in. Uh, that's the headline. Wow, dudes. Um, great headline there. Just cut off half a sentence. But we're going to read this. Uh, like I said, ultimateguitar.com is the credit here. Um, I don't know who interviewed whom. Okay, let's see. So they snagged it from Talk To Me. I'm not going to go there, but we're going to read what we have here. The interviewer in that uh, situation mentioned the group's massive vault and how it's insane how much stuff drummer Lars Ulrich archived. Um, Jason commented, and uh, this is... This is a transcription from the interview. I guess it was audio or video interview. Uh, this is going to be quite lengthy. This might be the entire news segment, but I'm going to read through it. Uh, it is Metallica news, and we don't get that very often. So here it goes. It's amazing to me as well. Lars had the perspective all the way back from the beginning somehow. 
I don't know if it's just out of him being an only child, having room to put everything away that you wanted to put away, stash stuff, and keep everything that you ever had. When you have brothers and sisters, you don't really get to do that. So he was able to do that in the beginning. But once again, he was way steps ahead of us and understood that these archives would become so valuable because of the vision he had for the band, for his band. And the way that he knew or how much he enjoyed collecting the remnants of other bands that he loved. Or being along with King Diamond, Mercury Fate, and all that stuff. But back then, when he was a fan of those guys, and he collected all their stuff, and he made sure to hang on to all the pasts, little remnants, tokens that he got from their shows and their gatherings and experiences. And it was always really weird to me from the beginning where he would keep the hotel room rooming list. Every blank thing. I'm like, this is a little obsessive disorder deal, but now it's pretty wonderful. Back in the day, I'm not sure how how he has it. Back in the day, I'm not sure how he has it. I'm sure it's way outgrown his room that he had back then, but he built his uh, this underground place where he would keep all the stuff. Sometimes he got us a little bit PO'd, I think, me anyway. He was always the connection with everything. His thumb on the pulse of everything. Get all kinds of freebies from way back, man. He had that stuff figured out where you could reach out somewhere in the sense that, well, they'd always send him four of everything because of how many guys are in the band. But he would keep all four and not tell anybody about anything. So when you go back into his vaults, there's four of everything, like the whatever magazine, or this or that, or this print of Metallica thing, or whatever. Because he was so, because he was on top of it, none of us were on top of it like that. None of us paid attention to it like that, or sought it out like that, or listened to it. He did. He he was always way ahead. So thank God he did. Uh, that's the first segment. It goes way, way on further than that. But Metallica died, in my opinion, when Jason Newstead left the band. Uh, as a bass player, I'm not a really big fan of Cliff Burton. I respect him as a musician. He was a great musician and a superb songwriter. But he left a lot to be desired as far as his tone went as a bass player. I uh, respect the fact that he was seen with the Rickenbacker, heavily modified, so it might as well not even have been one. But the fact remains, 
Cliff Burton is not one of the bass players that I look up to and idolize as a bass player. He played a four-string lead guitar, and that was his tone, and that that's where I leave it. I hate that he passed away. Who knows what Metallica would have went on to do had he been a part of it. But they replaced him with Jason Newstead, and that's the era that I grew up on primarily. Uh, being a child of the 80s and 90s, Metallica didn't come into prominence on my radar until I was in middle school. So that puts me at about um, late 80s, mid to late 80s in high school, early 90s. And uh, that was it, man. Uh, Jason Newstead was treated terribly. The whole time he was in that band, uh, because this or that, and I don't think he got a fair shake. Uh, their new bass player, God, I forget his name. I haven't really listened to him. True Joe, I think. I love that guy to death, but he benefited from the mistakes that they learned with Jason, and it's unfair. Uh, Jason was just. Treated terribly in Metallica because he wasn't Cliff, essentially. And I really feel bad that um, that Jason left the way he did. Um, He never, you know, as a solo artist, he never garnered the attention that the rest of the band did after he left. And in the documentary, Some Kind of Monster, you see this um, pretty evident. Jason married his music, and it shows um, he's he's just... I can't say enough good things about the dude. Other than he endured a lot from Lars and James. And I think Kirk just kind of goes along with it. Kirk's not an original member of the band either, so he just kind of bites his tongue most of the time. They shit all over Dave Mustaine, too. So, as human beings, I'm not a real big fan of the Lars James Hetfield uh, team. You know, Kirk Hammond is probably the best guitar player Um uh, one of the best. I can't say he's absolute, but he's one of the best. And uh, he's uh, he's a team player, so they pretty much leave him alone because he knows his place. He knows his place in the band, and he's very sensitive. And I just don't think Kirk wants all the drama. Jason is, is strong-willed. He had a creative vision, and... He wanted to explore that. They wouldn't let him. They're an all or nothing kind of ultimatum. And, you know, after 20 years of being mistreated anyway, who who's going to put up with that? I wouldn't put up with that. If I went into a band, it's an equal partnership. I get one for say in everything as far as I'm concerned, unless I'm hired in. The band already existed and I'm hired in. But if I'm replacing somebody... And you accept me as, as okay, you're part of the band. You are, you know, this part of this band. Then, yeah. 
But if I'm just hired to replace somebody temporarily or otherwise, unless it's explicit from the beginning, hey, you're just an employee of this band, you're filling a space, you know, then what are you going to do, right? So that's that. Uh, I've got a few more minutes here in this segment, and I would like to see if there's any more news out there because that was... I kind of took over a little bit. I am getting sick and tired of the word hacked. Uh, how the late rock god Eddie Van Helen hacked his guitar. This is popular mechanics, by the way. Um, he didn't really hack it. He, he adapted... <laughs> Uh, modifications to suit his needs and uh, so you know I I just don't I, it's just, the word hacked is just overused um, I'm kind of scanning headlines here so if I seem distracted my apologies a uh, little Rob Halford, Judas Priest news here. These don't make any sense to me, but they're kind of interesting. We have the three singers, Judas Priest, Rob Halford, listed as his favorites. I'm kind of curious, as a vocalist himself, I'm kind of curious to see who his favorite would be. Uh, Ronnie James Dio's number one, obviously. Um... Listen to him every day. Bruce Dickinson. That's an obvious choice. And uh, Robert Plant. Okay, that's maybe not so obvious, but understandable. Okay. Ronnie James Dio, Bruce Dickinson, and Robert Plant. Well, there you go. That's kind of no surprise at all. Sammy Hagar shares his first impressions of Van Helen. I didn't like David Lee Ross' antics. I, I didn't see how any guys could. That's a matter of opinion there. Um, watch Mud Vane perform their first show in 12 years. Not, uh, not jumping out at me, dudes. Oh, there. They're heavy metal, but they have this uh, stage presence of... I don't know. I'll have to go and visit their music. I've never heard of them right off. So they kind of slipped under my radar. But anyway, um, Ghost Cover Metallica's Enter Sandman is if they wrote it. That'd be interesting. How Gray Slick composed White Rabbit, the greatest drug anthem of all time. It's not a drug anthem. Okay, White Rabbit is basically a plea for help. Okay, and I say that loosely. White Rabbit is a song saying, hey, we 1960s and beyond have become a drug culture where all these kids are hooked on drugs. But look how we got here. Pills and drugs were handed to us blindly by our parents to solve every problem. So when we get out into the world, 
we gravitate towards drugs, towards chemicals to fix everything because our parents didn't talk to us. You're feeling down. Here's a pill. You're, you've got too much energy. Here's a pill. As a Gen Xer growing up in the eighties as a kid, uh, freaking Ritalin was a real big problem because, you know, high-energy kids, just hand them a bottle of it. And you don't see it so much these days. And ADHD is a thing, sure, but I really don't think it was as common as people would have you believe, even to this day. And I think there are some people that are just high-energy. And back in the day... High energy kids skipped school, went fishing, or they went out and did something. They their their parents knew, okay, sitting in a classroom's gonna kill you. Let's take you out to the barn and put you to work and burn off that energy. Are you gonna get a college degree? No, but you're gonna be able to work with your hands and you'll always be able to make a living. Does that mean you're not as smart as the other kids who do get that college degree? No, it just means you're different and you chose a different path or you need to choose a different path. We cannot expect the children and people in society to this day be cookie cutter and be all come out the same. And the answer is definitely not in the drugs and it's definitely not in the pills. And it's not the answer. Talking and communicating to people and being able to sit down and have a conversation where you may have two different points of view. Parents need to talk to their children, period, instead of just throwing pills at them. Or throw them at the doctor so the doctor can throw pills. Well, the doctor said, I hear this. I mean, well, the doctor said, well, doctors don't know everything. They're people. Okay, they make mistakes too. How many times have you read stories about scissors getting sewn up into somebody's back? Oops, we gotta open you back up and get those scissors out of there. Oh, sorry. Hope you don't sue me. Uh, you, you know, so they make mistakes. Okay, and there there's an underlining entendre here that I'm not going to go into, but just take my word. Doctors don't know everything. They're your children. They're your responsibility. You brought them into this world. You shape them. You teach them. You talk to them. And the answer is not in a chemical. I'm sorry. So White Rabbit is not pro-drug at all. It is a explanation at the very least say hey society is broken the next gen the baby boomers children generation x is broken no 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 the baby boomers the great generation broke their children the boomers um because because of the drug culture Okay, the whole story of Alice in Wonderland is about an acid trip or a hallucinogenic trip. She ate a mushroom. So that's what the song is about. It's not an anthem pro-drug. And that's one of the things I get really bent over is when people talk about Pink Floyd being a psychedelic band. They're not. They're progressive. And they hate the word psychedelic because psychedelics pretty much ruined the the founder of the band, Sid Barrett. So they, they really don't like being associated with the psychedelic scene at all. They think of themselves as progressive, moving forward, and that's just kind of where they're at. So that's going to round up the new segment for today. I'm 
I don't know how much news was in the news segment, but hopefully you got something out of it. And we'll just jump back after the bump or the cue, and uh, we'll we'll talk about wrapping this whole thing up and what we learned from mini discs and all that other good stuff. And uh, like I said, uh, I got a little little rantish there because a mislabel. Mislabeling bothers me. Uh, so there you have that. And who knows? Uh, it's just it's just frustrating because if you you if you're a fan of that song, why don't you know what it really means? Otherwise, oh white rabbit's kind of in the news lately, so I'll talk about it, you know. A Grace Slick herself has explained the song, and if you're interviewing her you know it's not an anthem. She's going to tell you in the interview that it's not an anthem to drugs. It's a duh to drugs. How, you know, what do you expect your children to do when, you know, the very at the very least you throw an aspirin at them whenever they have the slightest problem. Now, when I was growing up, you know, if I had a headache or something, I went and took a nap. Okay, I need to take a break. I need to go take a nap. I've got a headache. I didn't start taking medication until I was way into adulthood. Like in my 40s. I never took aspirin. I never took anything. I never I never did. I never believed in it. It's like, no. These these pains and aches are my body telling me that something's wrong and I need to listen to me. I'm not just going to mask it up with medication. If I'm feeling a certain way, I'm not going to cover those feelings up with medication. Uh, There's a great book, Lost Connections. I can't promote it enough. And it talks about depression and how chemically treating depression is not really the answer. Changing the root cause of your depression, the rut that you become a part of, is the cure for depression because if you're chemically treated eventually that depression is going to seep back in and your dose is going to have to be increased and before long you're on such high doses of this antidepressant you're no longer you you're somebody else completely and you're just a zombie walking through life and god forbid you to forget to take your pill so that wraps it up on the news segment. And uh, like I said, I don't know how much news was in this news segment, but the voters have spoken. and Y'all don't want me to change very much at all. I was going to do news differently, but that got voted out very quickly. So now I'm just going to keep doing what I do. And if I just fumble my way through the news and that's it. So. Uh, after the segue, we'll, we'll talk about a recap of this episode. This might be a little shorter than some, but I don't think y'all mind. So recap after the break. And that was the news. All right. Um, where were we? Oh yeah. Mini disc. So yeah, I think mini disc is a viable Option for space saving. Uh, it's a good jump into the digital realm. Uh, it, in fact, you almost might want to consider optical media 
um, such as mini discs and CDs and whatnot. Um, it's almost hybrid because truly digital, you don't have anything physical involved at all. You know, you've got a MP3, let's say, just from the very beginning is ones and zeros. And the only time it ever becomes analog is when it travels through a wire. So I eliminated that uh, when I hooked my uh, clip shits up to my my Mac because it doesn't use wire. It uses the optical out. Um, so there's no analog at all. Uh, do I hear a difference? Yeah, the clarity is absolutely amazing. To sit down and experience music, uh, really good music, like, you know, like good HD video off of YouTube, like from a concert or something. Uh, it's really good. But if you have the source media, like an MP3 that you required, it's, you know, a high bit rate, like 256 at least, or FLAC or AUG Vorbis are one of the non, you know, the lossless formats that are out there, or even a WAV file. A lot of folks just don't care about space these days because hard drives are so cheap. So they just, you know, rip their tunes straight wave. And that's cool, too. I mean, you know, whatever you got to do. Um, the news segment, I'm guessing that that was probably not going to be very popular this week because um, I trashed all over Metallica most of that. Uh, I don't apologize because... um. While their music is great and they do have a, a tremendous impact on other musicians and their music is great. Like I said, uh, no complaints about the music at all other than Jason Newstead getting shafted his first album with him. Uh, you know, the childish games that they played with Jason over the years was just, it was just uncalled for. And um, I'm just an advocate for Jason Newstead. As a bass player myself, um, play bass and guitar, um, but I have a deep appreciation for playing the bass just because the challenge that instrument presents. Uh, guitar has its own challenges, but there's a lot of work involved in playing a bass. Um, it's a discipline all unto itself in my humble opinion and I have tremendous respect for it um look be on the lookout for um I might do um I might record some original music for this podcast maybe um some just some something I don't I don't know I kind of need some production music and um, not finding what I'm looking for. Uh, like better, I'm, I'm would like to evolve uh, to a better introduction. Um, maybe kind of have a music bed under the the sound bite that intros the show, or maybe I'll just do it over completely. Um, I don't know. Like I said, uh, 
I just feel like uh, I just feel like I need to do something a little more creative. And uh, that's going to wrap up this episode. It's going to be a little short, but that's fine. I didn't really talk about a whole lot, but uh, keep the mini disc in mind. Now, let me know if y'all like a part two of the mini disc episode here, because uh, there's a lot more about it I could talk about. I can go into a little more technical detail about how it works and, you know, what actually happened to it as a uh, underdog and whatnot. And on that note, I will see you all next week or hear you all next week. And uh, I'm going to cut this out. And um, I'll be back next week. Oh, one little side note for y'all listeners of Geek vs. Geek. Uh, every one of those episodes that have been released are trash. They're ruined. Uh, I've got I've to figure out another way to... Um, Processed the audio on those. I didn't realize it until this week's episode. Uh, So we are extremely delayed on that. Uh, Bear with us. We will get those episodes fixed. I have the masters for them. Uh, We'll get those episodes fixed and re-released for your enjoyment. Uh, I'd hate for all that content to go to waste. But uh, like I said, I do have the masters. So... I will be reprocessing those shortly and re-releasing them. And you will be posted um, when that happens. And with that, goodbye and good evening, good night, good day. This has been the Budcast, broadcasting live from WBUG Studios in the heart of Eastside, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Studio B, to be exact, B can stand for whatever, basement, bug studio, Bahaba, you know, whatever. Good day, sir.